I'm exhausted. I'm so tired and weary. I just, I don't think I can do this anymore. I, I quit. I can't handle it. It's just too much. I can't keep going like this. I, I wonder if you've ever felt like that in life before. I wonder if in your weakest moments, or maybe even sitting here this morning, you've felt like that before. You've looked at your life. You've looked maybe at your job. You've looked at your kids. You've looked at your marriage. You've looked at your ministry. Just life in general is hitting you so hard, and you look at it and say, what am I doing? What's going on? I can't do this one more day. I'm so discouraged. I'm so weary. I think if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us has been there. Amen? Amen? We've all been there. We've all been there. And if you haven't been there yet, believe me, the day is coming where you will be. And we desperately, in our lives, and in this Christian life in particular, we need encouragement for our souls. We need to be reminded that we can keep going. We need to be given the strength to keep going. We need to be called to press on. We need our, our sails filled with the wind that only God can bring. And you know, as you look at the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, I really believed he was in a place in his ministry at various times, and specifically in Acts chapter 18 this morning, he was at a place of weariness. He was tired. I think in some ways he was discouraged, as I trust we'll see this morning. And I think God speaks so powerfully to his situation and to ours. So let's open to Acts chapter 18 together this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are walking to the front and uh, you can put your hand up in the air, and we would love to just get a Bible into your hand so that you can follow along in God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, just take this one home with you. This is our gift for you this morning. We'd love to give you a copy of God's Word. Weariness strikes even the, the best of men. Discouragement hits even the strongest of individuals. And Paul is certainly one of the strongest individuals that I've ever read about, that I've ever seen depicted. And yet here's Paul, as we've marched through the book of Acts, this great missionary, this man who proclaims the gospel everywhere in any kind of situation. He seems so relentless. And right now in Acts chapter 18, he's just left the intellectual elite, the philosophical elite in the world in Athens, and, and he's declared the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now he heads, as we see in verse 1, to Corinth. He leaves Athens, and he heads to the city called Corinth, one of the greatest cities in the ancient world of the time. It is a massive city. It's a port city that is filled with all kinds of commerce, people crossing in and out, which produces an incredibly debased culture. If you know anything about the city of Corinth, you know this, biblically speaking and historically speaking, it's a place that's filled with all kinds of idolatry and sexual immorality. I mean, if you want it, you can find it there in Corinth. The wickedest of evil deeds is prevalent in this city. And here is Paul marching into this debased and incredibly, incredibly difficult environment, culture. If you want to get a taste of 
what Paul dealt with there, all you have to do is read the, read the letter of 1 Corinthians where Paul explains to the church, to people who are Christians, as he kind of untangles the web of their sin and the things that, the, that, that were pervasive in the life of the church that really reflect the culture that they were steeped in, the lives that really they were steeped in before coming to Christ and how that carried over into the church. And Paul, he marches into this city and he actually tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, he says to them, I was with you. Remember, church? I was was with you when I first came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is Paul we're talking about. Here's Paul describing his disposition before this people. Paul is so determined to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I believe that statement and, and many others, and even through this text, indicate that Paul was actually very weary. He was in need of encouragement. His soul needed to be encouraged by the Lord. And you know, God provides, thankfully, encouragement in a variety of different ways. Encouragement that strengthens our souls and enables us to fight another day. So whatever you're going through this morning, however difficult you're finding life to be, I pray that God's word would encourage you in a deep and meaningful way today in the same way that God encouraged Paul. Just note this if you're taking notes. First, when I'm weary, God provides my comfort. When I'm weary, God provides my comfort. And how desperate we are for comfort when we are weary and tired. Verse 1 tells us after this, Paul left Athens. Remember that scene from last week. Paul was preaching in the Areopagus. He was unpacking the truth of the God of the Scriptures. And there were some people who heard and believed. There were some people who mocked him and reviled him. And there were others who were curious. But after he had spent some time in Athens proclaiming the gospel, he finds himself making his way from Athens to Corinth. It's about a 50 to 60 mile journey on foot, Paul likely made it. Paul arrives in this unfamiliar city. That's what you have to keep in mind. He'd never been there before to our knowledge, and all of this was brand new, as was so much of Paul's journeys. He had been in Macedonia for some time, right? He'd preached to the church in Philippi. He had preached through Thessalonica. He had preached through Berea. And every time he preached, remember what would happen? Opposition came out of the woodworks, and he was essentially driven from one place to the next. People are being saved, so his ministry is flourishing. But how tiring it must have been to be run out of every city, to always be fearing for his life. At this point in the Apostle Paul's ministry, he's all alone. He's left Paul and, or excuse me, Silas and Timothy back in Macedonia to minister to the churches there. And he's arrived in Corinth all by himself. There's no ministry team. There's no friends. And I, I think we all know this and we can all probably experientially understand this. There is no feeling in the world, I think, that compares to the feeling of being absolutely alone. That's why I think uh, God reminds us at the very beginning of the Bible that from the beginning it is not good for man to be alone. And you see, one of the key ways that God provides for our comfort, and sometimes we just need eyes to see it and we need to be reminded of these truths, is found right here, that God provides my comfort in community. God says it's not good to be alone, and so what he does is he provides other human beings for us to have meaningful interaction with. He provides companionship. He provides fellowship. He provides relationship, and here we see that right out the gates in verse 2. Look at this. It's so sweet, and he found, this is Paul, a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, 
because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and he worked for them, or worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Here, Paul begins his time in Corinth by meeting a couple who would become one of his closest friends in life. He talks about them often throughout the scriptures, and he always speaks so kindly and fondly of them. Uh, they would follow him and, and min- do ministry with him. They would even at one point offer to give their lives for him. It seems from every indication that when Paul arrived in Corinth, this couple was already there, and they were already followers of Jesus Christ. They weren't converts under Paul's ministry. In other words, he didn't have to kind of go and make, you know, kind of help convert some people so that he could have some Christian friends. The indication is that all of a sudden he arrives and God has provided for him some Christian fellowship and community. They came from Rome where history tells us that an imperial edict had been issued banning Jews from Rome. They were forced out because of some disturbances that there were, uh, that was happening within the, the Jewish communities. It's possible even that some of this disturbance was a result of people who were saved, like Aquila and Priscilla, who were proclaiming Jesus Christ, and that was riling up the Jews, and it was causing this massive kind of friction and tension in the community, and so by edict, they banned the Jews. And so coincidentally, right, always coincidentally, these Jews go off, this couple goes off to start a new life in Corinth, and all of a sudden, Paul just happens to run into them in his time of need. Don't you love how God works like that? providentially working things out so perfectly. They become fast friends, and Paul was looking for work. We're reminded that Paul had to support himself for part of his ministry. Rabbis, as Paul was in the Jewish culture, were required to develop a trade so that they could help support themselves uh, as rabbis. And so Paul, uh, through his likely his family trade, was a tent maker. And so as he walks into the city, he's looking for some work. And so maybe he runs across Priscilla and Aquila as he finds them making tents, and he begins to talk with them. There are other Jews, and so we have this in common and he finds out that they too are followers of Jesus Christ. They begin working together. They stayed together. I just want you to see this, that they do life together. You know, this is what true community is all about. We do life with one another, and we're reminded, listen, that that community and relationships are really at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be in a Christian is to be somebody who's been brought into a new community, a community that is centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is all about relationships from start to finish. It's all about taking people like us in our sin, as we, we heard even today in the waters of baptism, people who are far off from God, and it brings those who are distant, alienated from any kind of fellowship and relationship with God, and it first and foremost brings them together to have life-giving relationship and community with the God of the universe. That's the heart of the gospel. And all of that happens because this God came for us through Jesus Christ. And that instantly brings us into fellowship and meaningful community with other people who too have been saved from Jesus Christ. We talk about it often around here and in this church, but no Christian um, is saved on an island. We're saved into a community. Christianity, in other words, I like to say this, is not a solo sport, it's a team sport. We're brought together. 
It's amazing how community can be used by God to provide comfort from discouragement, how it can be life-giving when we're in our deepest moments of need and weariness. I was reading through Ecclesiastes this week and reminded of how important people are to our own well-being in all levels. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. And how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. A sweet and very vivid picture, listen, of how important people are in our lives. The necessity of being encouraged and lifted up and when we're down, and I just want to acknowledge this morning here, as I look across this room, I know for a fact that some of you in here feel very alone. And I know that some of you have, have relationships, maybe even you're married, um, but as you look at your relationships and you inspect your relationships, you feel very alone. Those relationships are superficial. They're not that deep and meaningful at this moment. For whatever reason, you feel like you're doing life all by yourself, and the Word of God wants to remind us that that's not good. You know, as a church family, I'm reminded by this. I love Paul. I think Paul is incredibly intentional, and though God provides the fellowship, I do think one of the things we need to know is this. If we're feeling alone, listen, God has not intended that. He does not want that. And sometimes if we're the ones feeling alone, we have to remember that sometimes people don't see it or know it. And we try to create an environment here where you can be honest and open with one another, where you can talk to people about your struggles, your hurts, and your pains. And yet the problem is, is that so often in our individualistic culture, we're so afraid to do that and we don't do that. And so we live in this place of being alone. And so often, listen, the problem is that we isolate ourselves in our aloneness. And just like sin, when you isolate yourself in sin and in aloneness, what happens is it becomes counterproductive. The thing you think you need, you know, I need to withdraw from everybody. I just need to be by myself. And look at Granted, sometimes we do need that, right? But as a pattern of life, to pull back from people actually begins to perpetuate the problem. It doesn't solve the issues of aloneness. It actually stirs up greater feelings of aloneness, greater acknowledgement in our own spirit of aloneness. And so if you're struggling with aloneness, I just want to encourage you, take a step of faith and trust that God wants to provide community for you. Talk to somebody. Tell somebody what you're struggling with. Tell somebody that you need meaningful relationships and watch how God, in his grace, like he did for Paul, provides for you companionship and community that will bless you and lift your spirits. But just as a side note, listen, church, I want to talk about the other side. You know, one of the things we need to be aware of, some of us are not alone. Some of us have great fellowship and meaningful community, and we need to be very conscious of the reality that around us, there might be people who are struggling through life, who are weary and discouraged and burdened, and it's on us as well as a church family to be mindful and intentional about going after those who are hurting and needy, seeking people out, asking them questions, pulling them in, not allowing them to isolate themselves. This is what we do when we love one another. Amen? We pull each other tight. Paul and Priscilla and Aquila have this beautiful thing, this relationship that God has provided, and I think Paul needed it at that moment, and so often we can be the same way. And I love what they do here. You know, one, one of the greatest examples here is they treat each other like family. That's what we are, church. We are a family. That's what the Bible calls us, and so we need to treat each other like family. 
God provides comfort in community, and secondly, and related to that, he provides comfort by camaraderie. You know, almost that deepening level of companionship. You know, there's a a real great benefit to having new friends, isn't there? Isn't that great? You have new friends in your life that God has brought and refreshed your soul, but there's something really special about old friends, isn't there? But friends, you know you can rely on and trust with your life. You've been through so much together. Look at verse five with me. Paul had been preaching and reasoning in the synagogues every Sabbath. He's trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. He's trying to do ministry and and he's fueled by this new relationship. But then all of a sudden, verse five, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was then occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. This is so important to understand what's happening here. Paul and Silas, remember, were left behind. These are his ministry partners. He left them, you know, I'm sure with pain in his heart, but knowing that this was right and good for the churches in Macedonia. He leaves them back to take care of them, and he ventures out on his own, and all of a sudden, we see that right here at this moment in time, they're brought back to him by the grace of God. Paul had been going into the synagogues on the Sabbaths. Whenever he had time, he was always trying to reason with the Jews and the Greeks and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But one of the things the text reminds us was that Paul right now was, was, he was uh, excuse me, having to wrestle with the, the, uh, the working part-time and the ministry. And this wasn't a good thing. It was necessary at the time, but it was handcuffing Paul from being fully investing, invested in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the one thing that was so on his heart. And so all of a sudden, Silas and Timothy come, and his heart is filled with joy. His comrades in the ministry. And this is significant because not only does he have his old friends, they've been through so much together, so there's a strength and a bond and a unity the word of God tells us in 1 Thessalonians that they come from that church and they bring to Paul a good report. You think about that. Paul has labored over these people and he's had to leave to go share the gospel in other places and his mind is always probably thinking, I wonder how they're doing. I wonder if they're okay. I wonder if they're holding fast under persecution. And here comes Timothy and Silas and they're like, Paul, you'll never believe it. The church is flourishing there. The church is good. People are growing. They're sharing their faith. Hey, it's hard. People are being persecuted, but man, are they standing firm on Jesus Christ, Paul. Imagine what that would do to Paul. His heart would be so lifted and encouraged by this news. But beyond that, the word of God tells us in 1 Thessalonians that when they came, or excuse me, in 2 Corinthians, they actually brought a gift from the churches. They brought a financial gift. In other words, they were so in love with what Paul had done and so thankful for his ministry to them, they wanted to make sure Paul knew, Paul, we're linking arms with you, you're not in this alone, and so they bring this financial gift, and all of a sudden, the connection here is this, that because Silas and Timothy come, as they come with their gift, Paul is now freed up to do what God has called him to do full-time, preach the gospel. Man, Paul is just having his spirits lifted. And I just, I think that's such a powerful example of how camaraderie can function in our lives to be such an encouragement to our souls when we're weary and down. And I have the, in my, my study, I have a picture my, right by my desk. It's kind of in the corner area, and it's a really, really meaningful picture to me. It was given to me as a gift from someone in the church. And uh, it's, it's depicting Isaiah chapter 6, and it was based off of an engraving that was done in 1748. 
really old, old picture. And it really what it does is it depicts the life and ministry of the prophet Isaiah, all the way from his call in Isaiah 6 uh, through his ministry. He had a hard ministry, called by God. He had a difficult ministry. And, and uh, tradition tells us that Isaiah was actually sawn in two. That's how good his ministry went for him. But I have it sitting in, in the corner of my office, and it's a really, really important picture for me. See, it came at a time in my life where I was going through a lot of discouragement. I was, uh, I was going through just a lot, and, and not a whole lot of people knew what was going on, and this person certainly didn't know what was going on, and just at the right moment, this picture comes in, and, and on the back um, is a, was a note that was written to me. I'll spare you all the details, but here's, here's a line that just sticks out to me. I keep it there, and this is what I think of every time I see it. This says, a small gift to thank you for faithfully shepherding the flock, and then this statement here, we are with you. I, I just, can I just tell you, in the moment when I received that, what that did for me, the encouragement it was to my soul, the strength that the Lord brought to me from that, the meaningfulness of that statement, to feel like in moments of discouragement that I was not alone, that there were people who were with me. And, and I don't just say that as a, just from a ministry perspective. I think this applies in all of life. How valuable is it to have people around us who come alongside us in our times of weakness, our times of discouragement, they just put their arm around us and they lift us up and they say, hey, I just want you to know you are not alone. We are with you. We need to be so conscious of doing that. And we need to be so intentional about doing that for others. We love to put on a good face, like everything's okay, when sometimes it's really not. And how, how meaningful it is when somebody wraps their arm around you and just encourages your heart and says, we are with you. I think this fuels Paul's heart so much to know that not only is, does he have Priscilla and Aquila with him, not only now does he have Silas and Timothy, new friends and old friends, he has the support of all the churches in Macedonia who are coming to support him, who are saying, Paul, we are with you in the ministry. And so he keeps testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. This fires him up. He continues to declare the hope of the gospel that, that you can have hope in only Jesus Christ as was declared today. Verse 6 says, and when they opposed and reviled him, you know, there's a sense too, but by the way, this encouragement often comes when we most need it because of what's coming next in our lives, right? As usual with Paul, as he preaches the gospel, people don't like it, right? When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles, you know, at this moment, when Paul is being opposed and reviled, it would have been really easy for him to throw the towel in, right? I'm like, I just, I can't do this, Lord. How, how can I keep going? They're, they're not responding the way they should. It could have been such a downer to the ministry. And instead, what we see is this. He turns around and with boldness and confidence, filled with faith and encouragement, and he speaks some very, very strong words to them. Now, the antagonism must have been so strong at this point for Paul to say what he does. You see, what he does is he shakes the dust off of his garments and he says, your blood is on your own head. In other words, I'm innocent. Look, you've made your decision and I'm not gonna sit here and take all of your abuse uh, anymore. I've done my part. You know the truth. Now it's on you. And the picture of shaking the dust off your garments was an important Jewish picture. You see, when they came back into Jerusalem from a pagan land, into Israel, excuse me, from a pagan land, they didn't want to track the pagan dust into Israel because this here, Israel, was God's land. It was holy land. And those pagans out there who worship pagan gods, I mean, they can leave their dust out there. So they shook it off, you know, we're at the border, you know, hold on, border crossing guys, like, hey, you got anything to declare? Yeah, I got some dust, pagan dust you can take. Take that. You see, Paul looks at them and he says, you 
You can take your hard-hearted, God-hating, rebellious dust and keep it to yourself. And look, the Jews knew exactly what he was doing. He turned their own thing against them. <laughs> he said, this is, this is on you. This is on you. You are rejecting the clear truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, that's one of the most painful things to have to say to somebody. Sometimes it needs to be said, this is on you. You know the truth. And here Paul shakes the dust off his feet and he's so, <laughs> he's so done with these Jews, he goes right next door. <laughs> Look what it says in verse 8. So verse 7, it says, and, then, and, and he left there, excuse me, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, and his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. This is such a powerful statement that is being made here, and I think Paul he is able to stand up in courage because he knows he is supported. God has provided the comfort through his companionship, through the community, and through the camaraderie that he gets to experience in the body of Jesus Christ. He walks out of the synagogue and he walks right next door to the guy who owns the house next door. This is unbelievable, isn't it? And you can't tell me that this isn't going to provoke the Jews just a little bit. Right? They're like, yeah, good, we didn't want you here anyways. And he walks over next door, he's fine, I'll start converting everybody on this side of the fence. And he starts preaching the gospel. And certainly this guy, Atticius Justice, he would have been a guy who would have been most exposed to the ministry of Paul. He lives right next door to the synagogue. I mean, he probably heard Paul every day that, he, that Paul was there telling people about Jesus Christ. So he was already beginning to believe in the truths of the gospel, so much so as a God-fearer, he clearly embraced the gospel. He became almost a, a church and to add fuel to the fire, notice this, that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Now, I just want you to see this. And when we are weary, God provides my confidence. He provides our comfort through this community and camaraderie, but he provides our confidence. And in a moment when Paul's confidence could have been shaken, they're rejecting me again, he turns around, he shares the gospel right next door to the synagogue, and what happens? People get saved. One of the ways that God provides my confidence is this, the reminder, listen church, listen, that God is working through me. There's confidence that comes to us in realizing that God is actually working through me towards others for the good of others and for the glory of his great name. And that's what verse eight really reminds us of, that though it may appear like everything is collapsing and imploding again, what we see is this, that God is always moving and working through his faithful servants. So Paul shares Christ, saves, and how that again fuels the heart of Paul. You know, I, I wonder if you feel like this just in life sometimes, you know, you feel like you're working so hard and you're not seeing the fruit that's being born or, or maybe you're questioning whether or not what you're doing is even worth it. You know, I'm not doing anything right. It's not effective. I mean, I'm ready to throw the towel in. I mean, I feel like this sometimes with parenting, don't you? Like you look at your kids sometimes, am I alone in this? You're like, you're like man, and, and is anything I'm saying actually seeping in? Anything at all? All the, all the dads are like, I don't know what you're talking about. All the wives are like, mm-hmm. Sometimes we feel like that, right? Like we're spinning our wheels. It feels like uh, the wheels are falling off. 
and you're seeing absolutely nothing. You know, the investment you're making is not producing any kind of return. And then all of a sudden, at one moment in time, right, God gives you a sense of reprieve. It's like, okay, it's worth, you know, I'm doing something here through you. It's okay, keep going. You know, all of a sudden, you wake up and your child makes the bed without being told to do it. And you're like, thank you, Jesus. It wasn't all a waste. You know, something really important like that. Just when we feel like we're failing, or we're just so weary and discouraged, God gives us that glimmer of hope that keeps us going. Something sticks. You see those moments of obedience in your child. You see those moments of obedience in your life, that thing you've been struggling with forever. Finally, you feel like you've had a breakthrough and received some victory. That person you've been ministering to for so long and has been so resistant to the gospel. Somebody came to me this morning and told me, rejoicing of the news that somebody they had been praying for so dear to them had been praying for for years. Listen, who reviled them and opposed their faith in a moment last week turned and said, I think I'm interested to hear what you have to say now. Those glimmers of hope that we need, isn't it? God's just like, just keep going. Just keep being faithful. You see somebody give their life to Jesus Christ. And in that moment, isn't it true that in the moment of of that victory that you're seeing, all of the past pain and turmoil, all of a sudden it vanishes. You know, I, I can't help but think that here what we see is that people are being saved. The ruler of the synagogue gets saved. You can't tell me that's not a victory that would have fired up the heart of the apostle Paul. And then all of a sudden, uh, not only that, right, you have Titius just as all his whole household, excuse me, Christopher's household, and then you have this pattern being displayed, the other Corinthians hearing and believing and being baptized. That's a very intentional pattern, by the way. And here's what we see, listen. I think sometimes we read over this passage, we read things like this, and we forget the context that Paul is writing to. Remember where Paul is for a second, right? Remember where he is? He's in the most debased culture, one of the most wicked places that is in the ancient world. It is filthy. I don't even want to describe it to you. It's so sickening what's happening in so much of this culture. And all of a sudden, people are getting saved out of this culture. You have to, like, who are some of these people maybe? Well, you know something? Paul actually tells us who some of these people are. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, he writes to the church, and here's what he says to these believers. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swinners, will inherit the kingdom of God. I went through that quick, but you need to understand something. Paul is describing their entire culture. So like, don't you understand those people, all these people living in sin, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. They don't love God, they don't love Jesus, they love their flesh, they love their sin. They want to do what they want to do and they don't care who gets hurt in the way. They don't care about the glory of God. Paul's describing their culture. He's like, all of these people are going to pay for their sins. And I don't think this is a happy thought, by the way, for Paul. But Paul looks at the church, and here's the best part. He looks at them and he says, and such were some of you. These are the people Paul is ministering to. These are the people coming out of these horrific lifestyles of immorality, idolatry, adulterers, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Does that sound familiar to you? Does it remind you maybe even a little bit about who you were before Christ? 
And Paul looks at him and he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, I love baptisms and I love what we get to hear in the testimonies and I love what Paul says about them here because it reminds us, doesn't it? Listen, that there is not one person who is beyond the grace of God. There is not one person who is too sinful to receive the forgiveness, the washing, the cleansing, the justifying work of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? And tell me that doesn't just ignite your heart with praise when you think about who you were before Jesus. And we keep pressing on, knowing that God is providing confidence, that he is working through us, but I think this reminds us as well that God is working in me. God is working through me, but listen, for God to continue to work powerfully through me, I must acknowledge this, that God needs to be working in me. And it's so fascinating. We see Paul's ministry flourishing, but we also see the need for God to be working mightily in his own heart. And look in verse 9. This is, this is a really, really important passage. It says this, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. Now just pause there for a minute. Why do you think God has to say this to Paul? You think about that? Because he was afraid. He was so afraid at this point in his life and ministry, he was so discouraged and weary, listen, that he was on the brink of throwing the towel in and saying, you know what, maybe I won't keep preaching the gospel here. Maybe I'll just keep my mouth shut for a while. And you have to think, this makes sense from a human perspective. After all that Paul had been through, listen, he has been beaten, whipped, imprisoned, stoned, held in stocks overnight. He has been publicly humiliated on multiple levels. I mean, he, he deserves in one sense to be able to say, you know what, maybe I need a break from this. But God looks at him and says, you know, Paul, I know you've had a hard time. I know you're weary. I know you're discouraged. And I know, I know you're fearful. But you need to know that I want to be working in you, Paul, to increase your confidence, to encourage your heart. Paul, 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 1, listen to what he writes about his time there. He, he says this, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered, listen to this, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. Paul writes this while he's in Corinth. He's telling them, pray for us. There are wicked and evil men here and they're out to get us. I'm, like Life is hard right now. Yeah, we're seeing some victories, but I'm telling you, every day it's a battle to, to go out and to keep fighting this spiritual fight. I think there's, <laughs> you look at this and you're like, this is Paul? Really? I watched a, a documentary not long ago. I love watching documentaries, and um, I found one, just kind of popped up, you know, on Netflix, recommended that I watch this documentary. So when Netflix recommends something, you have to do it, right? Um, uh, it was intriguing to me. See, he was on uh, um, enforcers in hockey. And I love hockey. Um, I'm somewhat of an enforcer. You can tell by my huge frame. I'm just kidding. I'm not at all. Uh, but I, I thought it fascinating um, because it was really, it, it was kind of looking at the, the culture of enforcers. You know, enforcers in hockey, they're the guys who are paid to go out and intimidate others. They're paid to go out and fight others. They're paid to, to be a, a menacing force on the ice. And, and what was so fascinating about this was there's, there's kind of an epidemic in the world of hockey with enforcers. There's been a number of guys who are paid to do this who have been committing suicide. 
who have, are addicted to all kinds of drugs and alcohol, and it's become very evident, very clear, that this is a really, really sick culture. And, that, and it's psychologically messing with guys. And in this, in this documentary, they interviewed a number of the kind of the key you know, fighters and enforcers in the NHL, and, and one of the things that would, became a common thread was that some of the guys very explicitly said these words, people think we're not scared. He's like, we're terrified. He said, we sit on the bench with knots in our stomach. I said, why? why? Why are you so afraid? Well, he goes on to, tell, to say, you know, every time I get the nod from the coach to get on the ice, I know this, somebody's out there and he's going to try and hurt me. Every time I step on the ice, I know one thing. If I don't win the fight, my reputation is on the line. Every time I step out on the ice, if I lose one fight, two fights, three fights in a row, my career in the NHL could be over, and then what could I have? I'm nothing. I'm nobody. You know, identity wrapped up in, in this persona of being tough, of being strong, of not being scared. You know, I think so often we can put on a good front, right? People think that we're not scared, but at the end of the day, we too are incredibly concerned about our reputation. Oftentimes, we're fearful because we are relying so often on our own strengths and abilities, right? And we know, we know deep down that they're not sufficient enough. Some people have to legitimately be fearful of the prospect of pain, especially when it comes to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the prospect of rejection. Some of us face that on a regular basis. What will my friends think of me now if I I abandon my old life and I turn and put my faith in Jesus? Or, Or if I step out in faith and I share Jesus Christ with them, what will they think about me? Will I have any friends left? What will this mean for my job or my career? Will I be able to advance anymore? And when we see fear in ourselves, I think it's helpful to see, by the way, that Paul himself at times struggled with fear. And if the greatest apostle, you know, arguably the greatest missionary on the face of the planet has struggled with fear in preaching the gospel, I think, I think that should encourage us, right? Paul was just a man like us. And when we see fear in our own hearts, we need to stop and see that usually, usually, there's something God is wanting to fix in me. We're so busy in our fear trying to fix other things, and that's part of the reason why anxiety creeps in. We're trying to fix our own lives. We're trying to fix it our way. We're trying to fix somebody else, and so we become anxious and fearful because we're afraid it's not going to work. We're seeing very clearly that it's not working, and all the while God's saying, I'm actually the one trying to fix you, and your fear is reminding you. It should remind you, listen, that, there are, that you are not strong enough, that you are not sufficient enough, and that you are, in fact, very weak I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 56, verse 3. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And you know, that's really what God calls us to. It's a call to put our trust in him. God is working in us so that no matter what we face, we can, like Paul is exhorted here, fear not. Fear not. And here's the greatest reason why. Listen, Not only is God working through me and that provides confidence, not only is he working in me, but listen, God is with me. This is the greatest reason we can have confidence. In fact, verse 10, this is what God wants to remind Paul. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Now I'd like to tell you here that the the promise that um, nobody will ever hurt or attack you um, is valid for you and I, but I can't do that. That was for Paul only, okay? That's for Paul only in this context, in this situation. That's very specific to what he's going through and what he needed to hear for his confidence. The, the truth of the matter is we can't make that claim for ourselves, but here's the claim we can make, that just like Paul, our God is always, always with us. 
no matter what we were facing. Our God is always with us. Paul was told specifically that he would be safe for a time right here. In this area of ministry, God was not going to allow anybody to hurt him, but the greatest confidence was knowing that God was actually with him. I am with you, declares the Lord. You know, his power and his provision is available to Paul. You know, actually, when you look at Paul's ministry, this was kind of a rarity that God would actually tell him, you're going to be fine, nobody's going to hurt or harm you. In fact, generally speaking, in Paul's ministry, just the opposite was true. In fact, just flip in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Just a couple, one, one page over probably. As Paul went around on his missionary journeys preaching the gospel, here's one of the things we know um, was commonplace. Look at verse 20 with me. We'll start there. He says, he says you know, he's talking to them how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary, I, I went and I preached the gospel. That's always what got Paul in trouble. But look at verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. You know, God's compelling me to go there. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Can you imagine? You imagine doing ministry like that? Imagine you knew for a fact that the Spirit of God told you, hey, you got to keep doing this job. You got to keep preaching the gospel. And you don't, you, you know, you, I'm not going to tell you what to expect except for this. Everywhere you go, just anticipate. You're going to be imprisoned and you're going to experience lots of affliction. Sign me up. This is Paul's life. So, so you can imagine that because this is his life just in general, and that's the pattern that we see throughout all the book of Acts. Everywhere he goes, the guy is getting beaten down. And finally, just when he needs it most, he gets a moment of reprieve. Isn't that awesome? God's like, look, look, I can't promise you this forever. This is just for this time. This is for right now. You just need to know. I know you're weary. I know you're tired. I know you're discouraged. I know you can't take anymore. I'm going to make sure nothing happens to you here for now. And Paul ends up staying another year and six months. It tells you how much longer Paul needed some reprieve, doesn't it? And I think it's, it's important to see that God gave him confidence. But so too did this reality. Not only God is with me, here's the reason why. I have many in this city who are my people. See, when I am weary, lastly here, God provides my calling. When I am weary, God provides my calling. Paul begins in verse 11. It says, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, you see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge over these things. And he drove them from the tribunal and they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galio paid no attention to any of this. Here we see Paul getting proof from God that God's going to protect him. It appears like the opposition is going to have their way and they want to make a, a kind of a legal proceeding of it. They want to squeeze Paul out of the city. Best way to do that is to make the preaching of the gospel and Jesus Christ illegal, right? 
And that's what they were attempting to do. So they bring this before the proconsul, this man named Galio, and they try to persuade him onto their side. You know, he's going against Roman law. We can't have this here. And God in his grace uses this unbelieving proconsul to actually help support and protect Paul. Do you see that there? But the protection here isn't just God just saying, just don't worry, I'm going to make sure everything's fine. God is actually going to prove his case. He says, look, Paul, he's like, it's going to appear like things are going against you. Paul even here begins to open his mouth to plead his case, and God's like, hey, Paul, why don't you sit down? I think I got this one. Paul can't even open his mouth. And here, Yale is like, hey, hey, I'm hearing your argument, but this doesn't stand in this court. I can't adjudicate over this. Take this out. You guys deal with this yourselves. This is not a legal matter. And you know what he was saying in a sense right here? He, he was saying to them that it is not illegal to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christianity at this point is not deemed illegal. Now that's a big deal right now. That's a big deal because here what God is saying is, Paul, I have called you to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have called you to go to the nations and Paul, though it may appear that all the world is against you, though it may appear that the obstacles and the barriers are going to prevent the gospel from moving forward, I just want to give you these glimmers of hope, and I want you to know that, Paul, I am faithful. You can have confidence in what I'm doing, Paul. Look at this. I'm going to make sure that right now, in your day, in your age, in your time, the gospel will not be hindered, and you will have freedom in the land to declare Christ. Declare Christ. Now, that's... There's a lot to chew on there, and you'll notice this, that we're not sure who, gets, uh, who beats up who in this picture. There's a lot of debate. But I think that arguably the best case to be made, this, the ruler of the synagogue didn't do a great job, and the Jews didn't think he did a great job, so they brought him out in the streets, and they gave him just a good old-fashioned beatdown. Like, thanks for nothing. What, are you going to go get saved too, like Crispus? <laughs> but Galilee pays no attention. We'll leave it to them. And, and I just, I look at this, and you know, one of the things that I, I was really struck by was the reality that in, in many ways, what happened there for the advancement of the gospel is the very same thing that we get to experience in our culture in this time, in this day, isn't it? As you say what you want about our country and, and the problems that we have in the United States, and, 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 but just, I just want you to consider this. There's a lot of problems, but one of the things that is not a problem right now is that there is freedom to proclaim Jesus Christ without penalty. There is no legal action at this point being taken for being a Christian. And that's not true in other parts of the world right now. There are Christians who are forced to meet in churches underground because they profess faith in Jesus Christ. There are Christians, listen, it is illegal in some countries to try and convert somebody to Christianity. You can lose your life over it. I just look at this and I see, you know, God was just saying, Paul, I will make sure you have freedom to declare Christ. You don't have to worry. Yes, you're going to have persecution. Yes, people aren't going to like it. Yes, you're going to be opposed. But one of the things you're not going to have to worry about is the government coming down upon you and trying to crush this movement that I have started. And church, I, just, I, I think this is so important for us because I hear so often, I've prayed it myself so often, Lord, thank you that we live in a country where there is freedom to believe in Jesus Christ. You ever prayed that? Listen, I'm thankful that we can pray those prayers, but I wonder how many of us don't just pray those prayers, but are actually doing something with the freedom that we have. It's not enough to just pray and thank God for the freedom. One of the greatest ways we demonstrate thankfulness is by using that freedom for the purpose for which we have been called. And God is faithful, church. 
That's, that's why our calling is so important. God is faithful. He will do what he promises to do. And he has, I really believe this with all my heart, he has put us in a great country at a great time with great opportunity to declare in freedom, uh, right? Jesus Christ is Lord. You may not like it, you may not receive it, but man, will we use this freedom to spread the good news of Jesus Christ while we still can, might I add. Who knows when that could change? Not only is God faithful in providing our calling and should that fire us up and bring strength to us in our weariness, but notice this too, God is sovereign. And this is just quick. We're gonna use this as a transition verse or section as well into the next section, but that's gonna be after Christmas. So if you're wondering why I'm not gonna get it into into depth, that's why. Let's just look at a few thoughts. After this, verse 18, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him, Priscilla and Aquila, by the way, and Cancre, <clears throat> uh, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the churches. This is a transition taking place. This is going to lead into Paul's third missionary journey, but we need to see this as really kind of capping off this section for us. Paul, in many ways, is declaring through his life and ministry that his calling is really rooted and grounded in the sovereignty of God. You notice that he, he sets sail, and he goes through a number of different places, but one of the things he does is as he sets sail, he gets a haircut. And you'll notice that the Word of God tells us that he was under a vow. This is almost certainly a, a Nazarite vow, which the Old Testament advocates for individuals in the book of Numbers, and the idea of a Nazarite vow is that somebody abstains from drinking alcohol, from drinking wine, and from cutting their hair for a period of time. Some people were Nazarites for life, but there was only a very few of them. At the end of this period of time that they have vowed to the Lord, committed to the Lord, their hair was first cut and then it was burned along with other sacrifices to the Lord as a symbol of a self-offering to God. That's the point of the Nazarite vow. It's a symbol of saying, God, I'm offering all of me to you, and this is gonna be my declaration of that. If the vow was completed before, or excuse me, while they were away from Jerusalem, like Paul was here, the hair could actually be brought there and burned. Vows were generally made in thankfulness for past blessings or in asking for future blessings and provision. It's possible that this is related to both here. Paul's looking at how God has been so faithful to protect him, like he said, and so he's made this vow and said, God, I know you're going to be faithful. I'm surrendering to your sovereignty in this and saying I'm looking towards the future too, God, and I'm trusting you for my future. I'm trusting you for all of this, Lord. It's Paul's declaration that he's not the one in full control, that God, the king and creator of the universe, is the one who is sovereign over all things. This is an act of humility. It's an act of dependence. And you know, so often our weariness in our own lives, listen, oftentimes is a result of our own battle for control. Our battle to be the ones who take the reins, our battle to be the one who, who usurps God's authority and control in our lives. And 
we fight that, we battle that, and isn't that true in the sense that the gospel, you know, weariness in life oftentimes as an unbeliever is a result of trying to battle and fight for control, that God's saying, look, I want to be the one who rules your life, I want to be the one in control of your life, and we keep fighting and fighting and pressing against God and the gospel. At the moment of, of our conversion, we break and we fold and we say, God, I surrender, you are in control of me, you are my Lord and you are my God. And in that moment, you know what happens? Life, encouragement, strength for the weary. In the same way all through our Christian life, as we struggle against God, oftentimes we can find ourselves becoming weary, that struggle for control. But like Paul demonstrates, a life of surrender and submission to God is the path to freedom. He knows what God has called him to do, and he believes firmly in God's sovereignty to provide, to protect, and to lead wherever and however he sees fit. We need to remind our hearts daily, listen, that God has called us to something very important. The call to be a follower of Christ is a call to surrender your life, but it's a call to go out into the world and declare the truth of Jesus Christ. This is a call for every single one of us, and I'm a firm believer, listen, that discouragement and weariness can often keep us from our calling, but our calling can often keep discouragement and weariness away as well. And when we are reminded of what God has called us to, we're reminded, listen, that we live and exist for a purpose. We have a purpose, church. It's to serve Jesus Christ. It's to tell the world that there is a king, that there is a savior who has come into this world as a man who has died in our place, who was raised to life so that all who turn and have faith in him can have everlasting life. Are you discouraged and weary? That's okay. So too was the great apostle Paul. Are you scared and afraid? So was Paul. Need to be reminded of who you are and why you're doing what you're doing? So did Paul. God can meet you in this place. God can meet you today in the place of brokenness and weariness and discouragement. He longs to, and he longs to provide the strength, the encouragement, the comfort, the confidence, and the calling to revive your soul. And may that strengthen your weary soul so that like Paul, as he closes in verse 23, goes to all the different regions, strengthening all the churches, we need to be reminded, listen, that God can strengthen us so that we might be used by him to go and strengthen others. Father, we pray that you would remind us of this call. Trust, Lord, that you have this morning. What a privilege this call is, but God, we confess to you that oftentimes life is so challenging, it is draining, it is exhausting, and we are weary, Lord, and we know your word calls us to not grow weary in doing good, to not grow weary in serving you, and Lord, I just pray for every heart in this place that there would be encouragement and strength breathed into them by your spirit and through your word. God, for those in here who do not know you, who have seen the testimonies of those who have, Lord God, strength for their weary souls in Christ Jesus. God, may you break down even the hardest heart and may you show them, Lord, that there can be life and joy and peace and strength found in you. God, we Lift up to you now with our hearts and our voices an offering of praise. We pray, Lord, that you would receive it, for you alone are worthy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.